We return once again to the, and the words to this morning are found in Mark 14, and we'll be picking up in, in verse 43. So, Mark 14, verses 43 to 52 is what we'll look at. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And now he who was betraying him, who had given them a signal saying, whoever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures. And they all left him and fled. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. The title of today's message is Hypocrisy Exposed. And as you know, the word uh, hypocrisy means to wear a mask. And so if you are wearing a mask in the church today, you're a hypocrite. Just kidding. I've never had a setup like that before. So thank you, coronavirus. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> obviously, it's not referring to a mask, um, of a medical mask, that is. Um, the word hypocrite is referring to a mask that actors would wear um, on, uh, on the stage. Um, and the, the, the point simply is that hypocrites are those who... Uh, pretend to be something they're not. They, they wear a mask, so to speak. They, they are one thing internally, or they're one thing um, in their homes, but something different in the eyes of other people. Which begs the question, of course, why do people commit hypocrisy? Why is it that people put on an act to being uh, more virtuous than they truly are? I think quite simply put, it's because we, we prefer the image that we want people to see more than the reality. And the more that we grow to know ourselves, the more aware we are of our own weaknesses, our own frailties, our own, own shortcomings. And we want people to see just the best parts of us. Even if that's all they see, it's an incomplete picture, an inaccurate picture, it's still the picture that we would prefer them to see. We want people to love the image of us, not the reality. Uh, similarly speaking, people love Hollywood uh, actors and actresses um, because of what they portray on the screen. They like what they think those people are. They like the image of those people, even though the people themselves might be dirtballs and horrid people. But they love who they imagine them to be, not who they actually are. They're just actors. Uh, along with this, the, the rise of social media uh, has allowed people to create, like actors and actresses do, an image of themselves that may or may not correspond to reality. Usually it doesn't. Only what they want people to see. 
Likewise, one of the powers of advertising is that it encourages people to invest in ways to project an image. So uh, advertising will suggest ideas like if you dress this way, if you listen to this sort of music, if you drive this sort, sort of car, if you have this sort of house or live in this sort of neighborhood, people will then assume that this is what you're like. The church as well does this. If you just speak a certain way, say Jesus with just the right accent on the second syllable, people, if you just pray with certain words, then people will assume that you are godlier than you realize, than you realize that you're not. And it's easier to construct a false reality for people to admire than to actually be an admirable person. And that's why, that's why we play the hypocrite is because it's just easier. And so instead of actually becoming what we want people to see, it's easier just to give them an image or to project an image. It, hypocrisy, in other words, is a cheap and easy way to win admiration. And Mark 14, verses 43 to 53, is really an expose on the hypocrisy in Israel. That's the point. And three people groups are noted. And this serves as the outline for today's message. The hypocrisy of Judas. Then it shows the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And then closes with the hypocrisy of the disciples. And this is really to round out the totality of Israel. Those who followed Christ, those who hated Christ, and those who pretended to follow Christ but really weren't devoted to Him but themselves. And the fact that the disciples are actually included in this expose, I think shows us that this is given to us to give us a warning of the dangers of hypocrisy. We're all in danger of it. And so, how should we respond in light of that? Well, let's look first of all at the hypocrisy of Judas. Judas, as you know, is really the most famous hypocrite who has ever lived. Um, nobody names their child Judas. They don't even name their dogs Judas. And that's because he is known as the worst of betrayers. In fact, in verse 43, 43 he, he's described as one of the twelve. To really to note the intimacy of his betrayal. This is not just one of the religious leaders. This is not an enemy. This is one of Christ's closest friends. And although it is Christ's enemies, the religious leaders, who come to him in the garden with swords and clubs... Notice who's leading the pack. It's Judas. In fact, it's even Judas who gives the signal, even tells them what to do. When I give the signal, seize him. And then in verse 44, he's actually not even named anymore. He's just called the one who was betraying him. Again, to emphasize he's a traitor. And so in this one act of treachery, Judas's name has forever changed. I mean, Judas in, was one of those popular names in the Hebrew culture. The name Jude is just a, even Jude, which is just short for Judas. That book of the Bible isn't called Judas. It's called Jude, the short name, because he doesn't want to be related to this Judas or, or have that reference correspond so Judas is forever known as a betrayer. And Judas himself tells the guards to seize Jesus and then lead him away under guard. And then 
That's right after telling him that the sign that he would give is a kiss. And I just want you to see the hypocrisy in that. He unabashedly is using a kiss as a sign of his own betrayal. So Judas isn't ashamed at all of his duplicity. He's using a sign that was a sign of intimacy and reverence and respect. Of all things, this is what Judas chose to be his sign. So it just demonstrates he's totally unashamed. In fact, it even seems like he, he relishes this opportunity. He's planned it well. It reminds one of the, the Israelite who in Numbers 25 uh, took a Moabite woman into his tent at, while uh, Moses was pleading with all of Israel to give up their cultic practices. In fact, go ahead and turn in that, uh, to that chapter in your Bibles. We'll just read a brief section. Numbers 25, I'll just read verses 6 through 9. It says, Behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all of the congregation of the sons of Israel. While they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from the midst of the congregation, took a spear in his hand, went in after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. And so the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. I mean, while Moses is pleading with them to repent, saying this, this plague that has come upon you is because of your false worship, your idolatry, a man gets up in the middle of Israel in front of everyone and commits this horrific act. And when a person no longer feels any shame over their sin at all, it's a really bad sign. They're very far gone indeed. And this is, it just goes to show that shame is really one of the greatest gifts God gives us. God gives us shame so that we would be led to repentance, so that we would be led away from sin, that we wouldn't continue in sin. Just like our bodies feel pain. The pain is there to signal that something's wrong, it's bad. Likewise, shame, we feel shame to signal that we've done something wrong. We've, shame is an awful feeling, but it's there to help us recognize the consequences, the horrific consequences of sin in our hearts. You might even uh, recall that it was Adam and Eve who first felt shame in the garden. Right? They meet, they. They immediately realized they were naked and went and hid themselves in their shame. And after God called them out, He then provided for them a covering. And it's knowing that we're spiritually naked, that's what drives us back to God. We need to know that. If we didn't realize it, we would continue in that sin most likely. So shame is a blessing God gives us. As long as people feel shame, they will be driven to the only one who can cover their shame. However, in modern psychology, the argument's made that the, the, the biggest threat to our happiness is actually shame. And so psychologists will encourage people to actually not feel shame for the things they do wrong. And actually they would say, 
those who tell you that you should feel shame are the problem. The Bible, for instance. Pastors, parents, teachers. If, if people tell you you, feel shame, you should feel ashamed of your sin, then they're the problem. They're the threat. And so they encourage people to embrace what they're ashamed of and actually to take pride in it. It reminds one of what Paul said in Philippians uh, 3.19. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. To glory in things that we are ashamed of is horrific. And this is Judas. He's a man that's so fixed on earthly things. He's completely... Unashamed, he would sell his soul for just 30 pieces of silver. So he has no shame at all, at least for now. But as you know, just a few hours later, as he, after he sees Jesus actually get condemned to death, reality hits, and he goes and hangs himself. It's Matthew 27.5. And I think we should note two things from this. That just because a person is living in rank hypocrisy uh, does not necessarily mean that they're going to feel shame over it. Sometimes God will allow a person's heart to become so hard, they no longer feel shame. In fact, there's even maybe a bit of a swagger. In fact, they they don't mind telling their friends about the the wicked things that they've done. That's a really bad sign. And just, just because you don't feel shame, or you know somebody who doesn't feel shame over their sin, doesn't mean that they shouldn't. Or that you shouldn't. Like Judas. And in fact, if that's you, or if that's somebody you love, realize that's what they're aligning themselves with. Judas. It also tells us um, that eventually their sin will destroy them. As as Paul says in Galatians 6-7, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. God is not, not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. God isn't mocked. Even though you might not feel shame, that's just numbing yourself to a good thing that's meant to help you. Your sin will find you out. We don't want to follow the example of Judas. We also don't want to follow the example of the religious leaders here, which is the second group he addresses in verse 46. It says they laid hands on him and seized him after Judas signaled who he was. And the hypocrisy of the religious leaders here is manifested in their violent seizure of Jesus, as if he were a man of violence. In fact, the, ver- the key verse here is in verse 48. Or it says, and Jesus said to them, have you come to me with swords and a clubs as if I was a robber? And notice also the repetition in this account of the word seized. They seized him. And he says, you did not seize me. Later on, that, that young man is seized. The word actually means to lay hands on. It, it actually connotes violence, a violent seizure. And you also notice that the crowd that came to him to seize Jesus came so with swords and clubs. And this is why Jesus asked him, why have you come to me this way as if I were 
a robber, as if I were a brigand or a, an insurrectionist, an outlaw. That's what the word robber means. His point is that this is serious overkill, especially given that you could have captured me anytime and I've never been armed. But it also is pointing out to them that, look at this. You're coming to me as if I was the robber, but look how you're coming to me. You are the ones acting like robbers. You are the ones with swords. You are the ones with clubs. You are the ones coming in the dead of night, sneaking up on a person. You are the ones acting like robbers. And you might recall that the last time we came across this word in the book of Mark is when Jesus was accusing the religious leaders of making the temple into a den of robbers. Same word. The last time it was used. Mark eleven seventeen and 18. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. And then the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And you might recall that, that Jesus is actually quoting there Jeremiah 7. And in that chapter, that's when God declares that he's going to bring judgment upon the temple because it was full of robbers. It had become a den of thieves in another translation. So he said he was going to destroy the temple and cast away the Jewish people for a time. That is exactly what is happening in Mark 14. This is the beginning of the falling away of Israel. God sent them the Messiah so that they might be saved, but all Israel rejected him. In fact, it's worth looking at Jeremiah 7. Go ahead and flip in your Bibles once again and just see how it's, how it's prophesying this, this very account. Jeremiah 7, verse 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares Yahweh. He's not fooled by their hypocrisy. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you would not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house, which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, as I did in Shiloh, I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brothers, all the offspring of Ephraim. So again, this prophecy is being fulfilled in Mark 14 when all the Jews reject their Messiah. And they are going to, as we see in the next passage, hand them over to the Gentiles. So when this den of thieves comes to seize Jesus, the text notes that one of them who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And we know from John 18.10 that this is Peter. And since the crowd came with swords, Peter thought he too would draw his sword. He swung at the servant's head trying to split his skull open, but instead of splitting his skull, he just cut off a piece of his ear. And, and note who Peter's acting like here. 
See, Peter feels like he's got something to prove. He's trying to cover up what's really going on in his heart. We know it's in Peter's heart because we see what happens later when he denies Christ three times. Jesus said this is going to happen. But he wants to prove that he's not the coward that he knows he is. See, it's really easy to act courageously when all are looking on and applauding. When all his friends are there. When Jesus, who has all power and authority in heaven, is standing right beside you. It's really easy to be courageous. But we know Peter, just hours later, is going to be cowering before a servant girl, swearing and cursing that he never knew Christ. It's just hypocrisy. And he's acting more like these den of robbers than he is like his Lord. Contrast how, how Peter is reacting to how Jesus is reacting. Jesus is fully resigned to what God has called him to do. Peter thinks he's doing something valiant, but he's actually undermining the purpose of God. Not only is he interfering with what God's plan has been, he's actually cutting off ears while Jesus is trying to open them. Notice Jesus, again, points them back to the Scriptures. Let the Scriptures be fulfilled. He's wanting them to to realize God is fulfilling Jeremiah 7 before your very eyes. Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures. So Jesus is pointing out both their shameless hypocrisy, but he's also pointing out his absolute confidence in God's plan for him. The religious leaders are shamelessly hypocritical because they had multiple opportunities to catch him in public throughout his life, but especially over the last week while he was in the temple teaching. They could have accused him then, but they knew he actually hadn't done anything to break the law. They were just looking for a way to to kill him, finding some excuse. And they knew if they grabbed him, it would just expose their hypocrisy. So they have to come upon him in the middle of the night to hide their hypocrisy. They know and he knows that they couldn't justify their injustice. So they act at night. And notice also again that despite the obvious injustice of what's going on, Jesus doesn't scream out loud, call for his lair, stamp his feet. He is completely at peace. This is happening in accordance with the Scriptures. God's got this. He's fully confident in his sovereign God despite he is facing horrific injustice by religious leaders. What what scriptures is he referring to here? Well, we've already alluded to Jeremiah 11, but I believe what he's saying, when let the scriptures be fulfilled, he's he's pointing to the falling away of all Israel. And this is alluded to um, in a number of passages in the Old Testament, I think most clearly in Isaiah 49.7 and Isaiah 53.6. Isaiah 49.7 says this. I shall also note that these are also what parts of Isaiah that are known as the servant songs that, that, that prophesy the coming Redeemer of Israel. 49.7 Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation. 
the servant of rulers. The nation abhors him. And then it says in Isaiah 53, 6, that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Old Testament prophesied that God would send the Messiah, but the, the Israelites would reject their Messiah. They all fall away. And this includes even his disciples. Which brings us to the third point. We already saw in verse 47 the hypocrisy of Peter swinging his sword to, to hide his cowardice. Here we see in verse 50 that it's not just him, but they all left him and fled. So it's not just Judas. It's not just the religious leaders that reject Christ, abandon Christ. It's his disciples as well. They're all hypocrites. So despite Israel being blessed with all of the law, all of the prophets, despite the fact that Israel received years of testimony of God's faithfulness, God always answered all of his promises. God had set Israel apart from all the nations. He had rescued them with great miracles out of Egypt and continued to sustain them while they wandered in the wilderness and even blessed them uh, with, with great rulers and sometimes disciplining them with bad rulers so that they would realize their need to turn to him. And despite continually showering upon Israel grace upon grace, Israel still loves themselves more than God. And Gethsemane just pulls back the veil and exposes their spiritual nakedness. And this is the point of the next two verses. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen, linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. And I believe the, the, the account here is to illustrate the spiritual nakedness of Israel. Tradition says that this young man was marked. There's really no way to know for certain that's possible. But I think the reason, again, that the account is here is, is to illustrate the spiritual nakedness of the Jews, especially his disciples. They flee from their only covering for sin. They, they leave their covering. The disciples are like the rest of Israel. God has provided them a covering, an atonement for their sin, and they leave it in the hands of those who seize them and flee. It shows that one of the best means of exposing hypocrisy, I think as well, is trials. They seized him, and the young man fled away. These, Jesus was seized, they all fall away. When we go through trials, it really shows what it is that we really believe. It shows what we really love, what we're really afraid of, what we're really afraid of losing. And the hypocrite will sell his soul as long as he could just keep up a good image. The upright and sincere person, though, just doesn't care what other people think. What they care most about is what does the Lord think? What's going to most honor God? And we're... They care about what others think of Christ, not of what they think of themselves. And so, 
if this was in fact Mark, it would make sense that Mark would put it in here. Because Mark, a sincere believer, doesn't care about keeping up, like, glossing over his errors. He's okay with being honest with that. Yes, I'm a failure. In, in Christ's greatest hour of need, I abandoned him. I followed him, but once I was seized, I fell away. A Christian will be honest with it because they don't care about the image as much as they want to glorify the Lord. And this does both. It exposes the complete failure of the, the apostles and the disciples, but the complete faithfulness through all of Christ. So it wouldn't surprise me if this was put there by Mark. So they all fall away just as Jesus told them they would. They said they would never fall away, but they all did. And, and again, this just supports what Jesus said um, would happen in Psalm, in the Hillel, Psalm 118. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. The reason that's true is because all people are hypocrites. Which, of course, begs the question, how does one survive in a world surrounded by hypocrites? I mean, who do you trust? Especially in an age where people can easily project their image. Because we can easily isolate ourselves. We can hide our sin. We can project an image. Who can you trust? I mean, even in the church... It's full of hypocrites. Now, hopefully not as hypocritical as those on the outside, but we all know, we know ourselves, we're not as honest as we'd like to be because we too struggle with the flesh. So who can you trust? John Milton writes, For neither man nor angel can discern hypocrisy. The only evil that walks invisible Except to God alone. How does one survive in a world surrounded by hypocrisy? I think first, you need to make sure that you're not being a hypocrite or harboring any tendency towards hypocrisy. That you're being honest with your failures. Just consider what's at the core of hypocrisy. What's at the core is a desire to cover up our spiritual nakedness with the wrong thing. To pretend that we're not spiritually naked. Using fig leaves, for instance. We, we put on masks to hide. And these masks can be good works, could be religious speech, could be church attendance, should be, could be giving, supporting good causes. And at first glance, I think we think hypocrisy is driven by a desire to, um, out, of, out of a fear of others. We're afraid of others. So we, want to, we have a desire to put on a good image because we fear what others think. But I think if you dig even a little bit deeper, what's really at the core of even caring about what others think is a desire to be worshipped. We want people to admire us or at least to admire an image of us, an image that we create 
in our own passage, an idol that they could bow down to in worship, even if it has no substance at all, even if it's just fake. Hypocrisy is the desire to get people to commit idolatry to an idol of us. See, realizing that there's really nothing worthy of worship in ourselves, we construct an image that people would worship instead. See, hypocrites are obsessed with externals because to them that's all that matters. All that matters is that people worship the image of us. Because we realize that there's really no substance in us. So we have to create an image that looks like us, like an actor on a Hollywood movie screen. They're not really strong and courageous and brave and can shoot without even looking, as all the actors in the, in the action films show. So we'll create a movie and then people will love the image of us. So what's the cure for us being of little account? What's the cure of us not having anything worthy of worship? We, we want, at our, the core of our hearts, we want to be worshipped. That's why we create idols for other people to worship. But we can't make ourselves God. We can't make ourselves worthy of worship. That's a very futile effort. And we know it. It's also incredibly sinful. So what do we do? We have a heart that longs to be worshipped and completely unworthy of it. Well, I think this is why we need to recall, uh, first and foremost, it's, it's not people's assessment of us that matters, but God's. Consider again the words of Hebrews 4. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him, to whom we must give an account. God's judgment alone matters. And He's not deceived by the hypocrisy. So it doesn't matter um, what people think. What matters is God's, God King. And the only cure for hypocrisy, therefore, is to smash the idol of self. We've got to smash down the idols that we've created. Show them that, show people, I am not, that image that you have of me is not worthy of worship. I am not worthy of admiration. I am not worthy of honor. I'm a sinner. I am worthy of damnation. The only one who's worthy of worship is Christ. So how do you do that? Well, this brings us to the second point. First, you need to make sure you're not being a hypocrite. Or harboring hypocrisy. Secondly, you need to look to Christ. Look to Christ as your refuge. The conclusion that one is a hypocrite, the recognition that one's a hypocrite, and is spiritually bankrupt, the, the recognizing there's really nothing worthy of really of true worship, is a really good place to be. And this is what Paul realized in Philippians three. You know this passage, so I'll just read it to you. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith. Paul's point is the only cure for hypocrisy, for the only cure for this desire to create an idol for others to worship is to smash it and to instead look to Christ in faith. And this is exemplified by Christ in the garden. This is what Christ does. Although Christ was worthy of worship and everybody still turns away from him, he responds not by stamping his feet and whining, but by entrusting himself to God. He trusts God. He trusts God's purposes. He is a man completely driven by faith. So that's the picture I want you to see is the hypocrite continues to want to construct an idol for people to worship and is resistant to smash it down. The man of faith is one who completely trusts in God and his judgment alone and therefore is at peace when things don't go his way, when people don't worship him. Because he doesn't live for himself. He lives by faith. So not only do we need to look to Christ as our refuge, we also need to look to him as our example. And this is, this is particularly how, is how Christians should respond as we see hypocrisy in others. As we see hypocrisy of Judas, religious leaders, and the disciples, this is all put to, to contrast the sincerity and uprightness of Christ. They're all hypocrites, but he isn't. And the point is, don't be like them, be like Jesus. And some of you might think, well, that sounds really moralistic. To say, don't be like Jesus. But this is exactly how Peter, that's right, Peter, the one waving the sword, the one who denies Christ three times, this is exactly how Peter tells us to apply this account. We read it earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll remind you, beginning of verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And he closes this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin, live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep. We've all like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah 53. But now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, what people learned from the saddest part of his life, what Peter learned from the saddest part of his life, was not to be like Peter, but to be like Christ. His point is, learn from him. I'm a failure. Mark, if that was Mark, failure. John, Bartholomew, all the rest. We are not worthy of worship. And so, brothers and sisters, we don't need to construct images. 
So what does that mean? What, does that mean we just need to tell everybody every sin we've ever committed? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I, it, I think at times it's very appropriate to confess sin. James, last chapter of James signals that. Um, but I think what it means is you don't try to project an image. You're just honest. Your goal is not to impress other people, but to impress other people with Christ. And so you can be honest with your sin. You can also be honest with your successes. It's not about false humility. It's just our aim is not, we don't think about ourselves. We just entrust, we just seek to be faithful, seek to submit, and we entrust God with our lives. If that means blessing, if that means honor, if that means loss, if that means humiliation and injustice, either way. The hypocrite lives for themselves and seeks to construct an idol. The Christian lives for God and doesn't care what anybody else thinks. And as you well know, not long after writing these words, Peter died. And he died being crucified, but not being crucified like Christ. He he, he requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified even in the same manner. His point is he died that way because he didn't want to um, detract from Christ. He wanted people to see, I'm not Christ. I don't even deserve to be in crucified in the same manner as my Lord. Because he realized he wasn't worthy. He didn't want to be another object of worship because there's only one worthy of worship and Lord that's why we want to close just in continuing to worship you we acknowledge every single one of us God has constructed an image uh, to, to unbelievers to co-workers to spouses to boyfriends or girlfriends to friends to Neighbors, and at times we have, we have lusted for worship. Lord, even after being saved, we have fallen and been entangled in this sin. And, and, and we are ashamed. And if, if we're not, make us more ashamed that we would flee from it. God, we want, we want hypocrisy to be driven out of our hearts. In, in, in the deep recesses of our hearts, drive it out. We'd be so consumed with an awareness of our, of our uh, failings, that there would be such shame that we wouldn't want that attention. And we'd be so aware of your success, your righteousness, your goodness that you've imputed to us that we'd only want people to see you and admire you. Help us as individuals to this end, but help us also as a church. So when people see this church, they're not impressed with the church but they're impressed with you and that you are God so gracious that you would cause such hypocritical sinners even to be brought into your family. Lord, make us such a people. We ask this in your name. Amen.